In my view, God is not coercive. Precisely because God is love, God's never coercive. He doesn't lobotomize people's brains to get them to think the truth. If you grant that assumption, then you realize that then God must at some point, he'll influence people as much as possible in the direction of truth, but he must at some point accept them as they are if he wants to continue to work with them and to continue to influence them. And this is what God does with Israel. And so it's not surprising that sometimes you have magnificent pictures of God in the Old Testament. They pop through, and that's the Holy Spirit succeeding it at working through their cultural presuppositions and assumptions to give a true revelation of what God's like. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Communitas podcast. My name is Kevin Johnson. I'm the chief field officer here at Communitas. And it is my delight and joy to introduce and interview our guest today. Our guest is Dr. Greg Boyd, who is the pastor, founding pastor of Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And uh, Greg is, above all, a passionate lover of God and his family. He is a practitioner theologian. He's a very provocative writer um, and pastor, and I had the joy of serving on his staff for a number of years before joining Communitas. And um, boy, from that point on, Greg has had quite a profound impact on my life, so it's a joy to be able to interview him today. Uh, Greg, welcome. You've hung around Communitas nice. a couple of times, haven't you? I have. Um, yeah, over in Europe at as a keynote speaker at a couple of our big events. Any recollections about your time with us? <laughs> yes, I have a lot of fond recollections of the time with uh, you. I, you know, the first I remember the first session. Um, after after our first session, we went outside and got some drinks and some gar- cigars to talk about the topic, and I, I just thought, okay. This is my tribe. You can go from a sermon and a worship service to smoking cigars and having some scotch. <laughs> so you get all the passion without the religion. That's what I I, I really like about the community, community crowd, crowd. Well, thanks for sharing some time with us passion, today. Yeah. You've got this cruciform hermeneutic that you've been writing and preaching about for some time that I think is just very compelling to so many of us. Can you say a little bit about that hermeneutic and and then how it impacts and engages those in our cultures who are in the midst of some form or shape or type of deconstruction or anger and reaction to church as they've experienced it? Yeah, yeah. That's a big topic. I, I guess the easiest way to explain it would be this. Um you know, we, we have to first acknowledge that we have some very violent stuff, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, some very violent depictions of God. Uh, show them no mercy. Uh, slaughter everything that breathes uh, in the land of Canaan or certain areas of the land of Canaan. And and, and so you we have to ask, how does that how is that compatible with the you know the the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, where God is love and love is defined by the cross. Um, God is other-oriented, self-sacrificial love. How do those two things mesh? Uh, there, there's some folks that just say, oh, don't worry about it. You know, that was the Old Testament, and they just kind of throw it out, uh, or that those parts were inspired. But I I, I don't think that, that that option is available for me. I, I don't think it's a viable option, because primarily because I confess Jesus Christ to be Lord, and it seems to me Jesus endorsed the whole thing as the Word of God. 
Um, and so it's odd for me to call him Lord and then try to correct his 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 theology. So so I, I we're stuck with biblical inspiration, whether we like it or not. I, it's a non-negotiable in my book. So the question then is, is it is there a way of interpreting it that's that that allows us not to have these uh, pictures of God that are contrary to what we find in Jesus Christ? And um, and so for some folks try to like you know make uh, put the best possible spin on some of these passages. Maybe he didn't mean kill literally all of them, just most of them. And and maybe you know they try to kind of apologize for the violence and and, and minimize it. Uh, and I, I just don't think their attempts work. Uh, I, I it's it's. Uh, like Paul Capon's uh, uh, book, uh, Is God a Moral Monster? He does as good a job as you can do. If you're going to take the surface meaning of these verses where you know, God says, you know, slaughter them all, he does as good a job as you can trying to minimize the ugliness of it. But what he doesn't do is show not just how maybe these passages don't make God look as ugly as they seem to, but how do these passages point to the God who's revealed on the cross? Because everything's supposed to point to the God revealed on the cross. Jesus said, it's all about me. And Moses wrote about me. And so the biggest, most important hermeneutical question to ask of any passage of scripture is how does this bear witness ultimately to the redemption that God brings us in the person of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So that got me thinking about like, uh, and it's weird because it seems like the most obvious question in the world to ask, but I didn't know that until I finally asked it, and that is this. How does the crucifixion of this first century Jewish man reveal the essence of God to me? Jesus reveals the very hypostasis of God, says in Hebrews 1.3, the substance of God. Because to the natural eye, you look and all you see is a crucified criminal. In fact, to the natural eye, what you see is ugliness, horrific. Especially when you understand that that this is a person who's bearing this condemnation of the world, and so it looks horrifically ugly. How does that reveal the beauty of God? Um, what do what do I as a believer see in Jesus Christ crucified that the non-believer doesn't see? And the answer is this: we both see the same surface, but faith gives us a X-ray vision, as it were, to look through the surface, mm-hmm. and we see what's going on behind the scenes that God is stooping this infinite distance uh, to take on our humanity and then to take on the, the, the consequences of the sin of humanity, uh, which is the judgment of God. And, and so he's stooping this infinite distance out of love for us. And the depth to which he stoops t- to bear our sin reveals the infinite perfection of the love that he is. You can measure the, the, the depth of a person's love by what they're willing to sacrifice. And here he's willing to sacrifice this for us. But you only see that if you look through the surface and see what's going on behind the scenes. Hmm. So if the cross reveals what God's like, he reveals what God's like when God inspired the Bible. And so maybe since we know that the central revelation happens when we look through the surface and see what's going on behind the scenes, maybe we should read the Bible with that x-ray same x-ray vision. Since we, we believe God is like this, let's look at the Bible this way. And now I can see God stooping all the time. Uh, what he does in in the in the ultimate way on Calvary, he's been doing throughout history, because in my view, God is not coercive. Precisely because God is love, God's never coercive. He doesn't lobotomize people's brains to get them to think the truth. If you grant that assumption, then you realize that then God must at some point he'll influence people as much as possible in the direction of truth. But he must at some point accept them as they are if he wants mm-hmm. to continue to work with them and to continue to influence them. And this is what God does with Israel. 
And so it's not surprising that sometimes you have magnificent pictures of God in the Old Testament. They pop through, and that's the Holy Spirit succeeding it and working through their cultural presuppositions and assumptions to give a true revelation of what God's like. But there's other times where you find these authors say almost the exact same things that the pagans were saying about God. In fact, they borrow their ancient Near Eastern imagery of, of you know, Yahweh being on the mountain, riding down on the clouds, throwing his thunderbolts and, and breathing smoke out of his nostrils and fire out, you know, and, and it's the same imagery. In fact, sometimes it's the same poem. They just swap out, uh, you know, Baal and put in Yahweh. Um, and see, so what we have in the Bible is sometimes a true reflection of what God's like, at least it's pointing in that direction. And you find that in the Old Testament as well as the New. But sometimes what you'll find is, God accommodating the fallen ways that people look at him. And there you'll find the beauty of God, not on the surface of the text, because it will be ugly. It will reflect, it will reflect the, the thinking of the Jewish people at the time. Um, but you look through that and you realize that God, this covenantal God, he, he, his love for Israel and wanting to use Israel to reach the world was more important to him than his re reputation at the time. And so just like Jesus wasn't afraid of hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, even though it turns his reputation, God's not afraid of hanging out with these Jews, even though they sometimes thought that he was capable of commanding genocide and slaughtering of little babies and selling off of little girls as war booty, you know? Uh, and, and, and so when I see those pictures now, it, it, I, I'm, it's like looking at the sin that Jesus bore on Calvary. He's bearing the sin of his people. And, and so behind the horrendous pictures of God, see the God who was crucified because he's crucified there. Uh, all of these ugly pictures of God become like mini crucifixes uh, once you begin to read them through the lens of the cross. So, yeah. you know, and, and the, the impact that that can make on people, when you really give yourself permission to believe that God is altogether lovely, beautiful, radiant, other-oriented, self-sacrificial, humble, uh, it is it, so freeing. Uh, yeah, one sure. lady came up to me after hearing me talk on this one time, and she's a, a, a 70 year old, 70 something year old lady in our church. <laughs> but she, she was crying. And, and, and she explained why she says, all my life, I've been in love with Jesus. You know, I, it's like meeting the man of my dreams, but I could never fully give my heart to him. Uh, it'd be like finding the man of my dreams, perfect husband. But then I learned that 20 years ago, he slaughtered a classroom full of children. I, 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 I could forgive him for that, but I could never trust someone who was ever capable of doing that. And she goes, the first time I began to hear about those slaughtering pictures of God, it had that effect on my relationship with Jesus. I, I, I could never fully give him my heart. I could never fully trust because he, he commanded little kids to be slaughtered. Uh, and she, then she says, now I have permission to completely trust him. And it was a beautiful moment. Wow. Thank you. Um, Shifting gears a little bit. Um, you've got your local ministry that is Woodland Hills Church. Um, and you've also got hundreds, if not thousands of parishioners around the world. People who have been captivated by this picture of this, this reality of the person of God in Jesus Christ and aligning one's life with that way of being. Um, what are you learning as you engage with parishioners around the world? Often, as you and I have talked, in many places where Communitas is trying to reach people in Jesus' name. What are you learning about 
their struggles, their dreams, their triumphs as they they grasp this picture of the kingdom of heaven on earth as you speak of it and um, their reality of seeing that fleshed out in their lives. Well, I, I'd say it has been just a, a beautiful thing. I mean, um, you know, in all things, God's working together for the better. And and uh, um, this this whole COVID business pandemic we've been in, and apparently still are in, um, but with the whole lockdown thing, uh, several events happened where you know, the George Floyd thing, but it enabled people, like when the George Floyd murder took place, um, we roared. We were, I was, that was just so in your face. It just was a symbol of all the race issues we're talking about. And, and that's why I caught on, you know, so it, it, the movement and response was much bigger than it usually is when black persons shot by the cops. Cause this one was really obvious. And, uh, um, but a lot of churches, white churches in particular didn't. And folks that were for whom race relations was important, got very frustrated with that. And so some went online to say, is there anyone preaching about racism? And so a lot of people found us. And, and so our online you know, community keeps on growing. Uh, in, in the house, you know, I think this is probably a permanent state. We're, we're still down about two-thirds from where we were pre-COVID um, because people are just choosing to stay at home. And instead of trying to get as many people packed into a building as possible, we're okay with that. Uh, but we're, we're telling them, if you're going to stay at home, don't do it just so you can have what, yet one more thing that's more convenient about your faith. We don't need our faith to be more convenient. We need to be going the other direction. And so think of it as a ministry moment. What can you do on that Sunday morning uh, that uh, if you're not going to go to the church, well, can you make it a ministry moment in some other ways, like inviting a friend over? Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be Sunday morning. You could do that Wednesday night or, or whatever. But to, to watch you know, the podcast and maybe begin to talk about things. Uh, it, it, you know, we are the church. And we've always taught that the church isn't a building, but if you're going to a building every week, it's easy to start thinking that the church is the building. And this uh, whole COVID lockdown thing really enabled us to uh, uh, make that more of a reality. We are the church and we got to act like it or we die. This church just dies out in one generation. If we're not, if we're not, you know, reaching other people. Yeah. It's like the bane of that whole thing is people realizing, I guess, you know, this Sunday morning thing that has been so much the nexus of my spiritual experience. Gee, maybe I didn't need it that much or as much as I thought I did, or it, it's it's at least not, you know, it's, it's the not nexus the, of it all. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the beginning, middle, and end of, of everything. It's a nice thing nice. to have. And, and we... We do emphasize the need for, for gathering together. You know, the need to you know not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as, as is the habit of some. Um, and but it doesn't have to be on a weekend in, a, in the same building. You know, meeting in each other's homes. You know, develop those right. networks like that. And exactly. uh, yeah, that, that yeah. bring your faith to where things are actually lived. But what I see in, on people's hearts or what they're thinking about, you know, it's 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 varies from location to location. But one of the dominant things is. Uh, uh, people are, are, are there's a growing awareness that uh, of the polarization in, in Western culture, but it's also happening throughout the globe. There's something really weird going on with democracy right now. It's all under threat. Uh, the polarization in this country in particular has gotten so thick that it, it, it's, you know, people are talking about civil war. Um, and, and, and so there's a great concern. There's an awareness that I think 
the world as we know it is in the process of changing rather quickly. And 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 so the the, the main thing I think people are, are looking for is hope. It's like you know, because it, it's really increasingly difficult. Now we should never be doing this anyways, but if I wanted to have hope in America, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah, it's no, it's not a temptation anymore. It, it's, it's, <laughs> and so the way I sometimes put it is that, you know, hoping in Jesus is becoming really plausible because the competition's dying off quickly. Yeah, that's good. People who are at all awake, the, the, the competition's dying off quickly. And so this is a really an opportunity for us as, as we are heading into an increasingly scary future. And uh, all the climatologists agree with this. And and if I had time, and I don't, but I, I'd make the case that from a biblical perspective, not only are human beings put in charge of the earth and the animal kingdom, they're our responsibility, but there's an organic connection between the earth and the animal kingdom. Terence Freitheim, in his book, God in, in the World in the Old Testament, um, really makes this case really well that there's, a inner, there's an organic connectedness between humans and the earth, such that as we go, so the earth goes, and vice versa. We're two sides of the same coin. And if you think about it, it makes sense because the atmosphere is like our, you can think of it like a, a, another layer of skin that we all need. It's just that we all have it in common. We really are united in this. And uh, um, uh, so where was I going with that thought? The claim, oh, wait, so they're aware that we are facing, as the president recently admitted, facing an existential threat. And um, um, so people are looking for hope. Uh, and they all, but they're also looking for not just the hope that you know God's is going to win in the end, although that is the most glorious hope there can be. If but, you, uh, but 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 the but the hope that what can we do now, yeah, in response to this climate change that's going on? And I think where I was going with this organic connectedness is that I think there's a correlation between the fact that this Earth is heating up at an accelerating rate, and human beings are heating up at an accelerating rate. The divisions, the, the 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 acrimony, the war, the you know, and so I don't know if we're facing the end of the world or the final judgment, but the New Testament t- tells us that we should live with that expectation. And I'd never really done much with that with my life. I, you know, I was apocalyptic for the first year I was a Christian, and then I got embarrassed and quit on the whole thing for the next 45, 50 years, however long I've been a Christian. And um, I've just been rediscovering it lately that to live with a sense of expectancy. The good news is that love wins in the end. Either that or this is all a mess. Right. This is that if we don't change course very, very quickly, we're in deep, deep, deep trouble. And I would love to see the church leading the way on this because we're the group of people that know that this is what we should have been doing all along. Loving the earth and the animal kingdom. That's our responsibility. So this mess is on us. And that's even apart from the, the, the argument about how much of this is our responsibility in terms of how much gas emissions we're, we're pumping out. I think the science is pretty clear that that has a lot to do with it. But even beyond that, our spiritual state pollutes the earth. And um, yeah, we, we either change or we're going to be in very, very uh, deep trouble. So my, my, my main message lately has been you know, have people join us in doing what we can to save this planet, to, to lower our carbon imprint and to, to degrow, to minimize and now we need to start talking about living a radically different, ecologically sustainable lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, that resonates, Greg. It really does. I want to go back to what you were saying just as a part of that when you were talking about even in a, on a political or societal um, perspective, people are driving further and further apart. It's becoming more and more polarized. 
And the question we find ourselves asking a lot within Communitas, and I'd love to hear your take on this. Um, given that dynamic that is not at all limited to the United States, it's, it's the same in many, many European countries and yep. places where we minister like Brazil. Um, oh, yeah. With that reality, um, what what do you think the church is going to look like in 10 or 20 years? And what do you hope it looks like? Yeah. Well, I, you know, it, that's a, it, it, at this point, you know, when you have so many things going on, it, when you're in a dynamic situation, the more dynamic there are, the more, the more moving parts there are, the harder it is to predict anything. And so it, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to say what it's going to be looking like. I hope what it will be looking like is we'll have uh, companies of people. I, 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 we may still be have be meeting on the weekends, uh, but you may still have some bigger churches. But but uh, um, the main nexus, the main unit of the faith, I think, is going to be more the house churches, uh, neighborhood networks. Um, mm-hmm. If only because at some point it's going to become ecologically. Unless you have an electric car, you, you want to drive it as little as possible. And uh, and so why drive to church when you can you know do it through Zoom or something else? But that 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 just makes the tighter knit communities all the more important. Uh, I, I think the church will be one that it will I'm hoping will be on the forefront of of uh, this call, this global call to e- ecological reduction. I mean we've got to lead the way in, in completely rethinking our economy because we've had a perpetual growth economy built on the back of a perpetually diminishing resource that pollutes our atmosphere as we burn it. It's not a sustainable thing. And we keep kicking the can down the road saying, oh, someday someone will figure it out, but we're running out of time. You know, and so I'd love to see the church being leading the way and demonstrating what it is to voluntarily impose self-restraint on the amount of energy you use. And, and, and look at your food choices, look at your clothing choices, look at travel choices, all of that. Make the earth and the animal kingdom a, a, a variable on all the decisions you make because they should have been a variable on all the decisions we make because it's our responsibility. And God yeah. loves the earth, the animal kingdom and doesn't appreciate when the people that he's put entrusted over them do nothing but exploit them. I, I really think our treatment of animals is the big deal. We think it's a little tiny thing, but it was our first mandate. You know, this is like humanity 101. You take care of the earth and the animals. And it's obvious that we should because we've got more capabilities than they have. Instead, we've just used them and abused them for our own, to build our own Tower of Babel. And um, we either, I never thought I'd be preaching this message, Kevin, but we either repent or perish. It's repent, turn around. We've got to reverse course now. And and in my view, God is a God who's flexible. You know, our our actions, the future is not fated. Our actions significantly influence what comes to pass. And so I'm hoping there's still time for us to repent. But the, that window is is closing quickly, and there, you couldn't have a message that's more urgent than this one. If part of that repentance is, like you say, uh, reimagining the church in terms of a much more micro sort of church that is, say, within walking distance of you know you and a few right. people in your neighborhood, that fits with a lot of what we're seeing in different contexts. Um, you know, this COVID lockdown taught us that the big Sunday morning event wasn't the linchpin we all think it is. 
Yeah. Um, there are ways of being the body of Christ, the kingdom of heaven on earth, that looks much more like a few of us in our neighborhood trying to make a difference in yeah, Jesus' absolutely. name. And and that just seems to fit with where you're going right now in terms yeah, of absolutely. you know creation consciousness and 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 redemption and health. And I also really believe that and it would depend on where you're living and what parts of the world, but but as this thing. 97% of all climatologists agree that in all probability, uh, it's, these extreme weather events are going to get worse and worse at a faster and faster rate into the foreseeable future, and they don't know how to stop it. Uh, we, we, did, we, right. the, 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 we have techo, our best minds are trying to figure out, but we're, we're really behind on the curveball here. And so it means that in all likelihood, if, as resources get more scarce, you know, who knows how you know, the water wars we're going to have as water dries up. Our whole Southwest is already having to ration all this water because they're in a seven-year drought. And um, But what, what, what pockets, communities, well, in, in this state of affairs, having neighbors that you can share resources with. And trade off things; it becomes all the more, all the more important. And the church could play a role in this, as as we invite people in on our resources. Resources are right. going to be important, and and the idea of taking care of one another, you know, and it's an opportunity for the church to be what we always should have been. It's just, you know, we, we got sucked up in this whole fossil fuels paradise that we built for ourselves and kind of forgot about it. So, it, it's in some ways, it's going to be a, an opportunity for the church, but. It's going to be a terrible mm-hmm. time coming, and I think we should be thinking about that, be preparing for that. I don't think we should be preppers like self-preservationists, whatever, but thinking about serving, uh, I, the needs are only going to get bigger and bigger. The need for hope, but also the need for food and for water. Most of us, um, myself included, have substantially, if not only, experienced the church from a, an abundance mindset. Yes, and how we learn to adapt to a scarcity mindset and engage culture in a Christ-like way is probably going to be a huge challenge for us, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's another thing where repent or perish. I mean, either we are the church or not. It's going to be difficult, but it's going to be more difficult if if we don't do that. You know, it's <laughs> it's not going to like correct itself. The thinking we've got to get out of it's, and this is the worst thing that we 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 in the West tend to be real pragmatic, and and so with that pragmatic kind of thinking, we might be tempted to think, what difference can I possibly make? Okay, so I cut down my electricity, and I maybe get solar panels, and I do this, that, and the other thing, and don't use reuse or single-use plastics. But if everyone else keeps on doing it, well, then I'm just making myself inconvenience for nothing. But see, that's exactly the kind of thing we, as kingdom people, we we have to avoid for two reasons. One is, it's always the right time to do the right thing. You know, this is how we should have been living all along. And 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 so, whether it's going to make a difference in saving the planet or not, <clears throat> we're called to be faithful. <clears throat> and that's just what faithfulness looks like. The other thing is, our individual choices are not just our individual choices. In the kingdom of God, little is much. You know, the widow's might. Jesus said that she put in more than everybody else. Objectively, she only had put in a penny, but it was all she had, and so she gave more. So in the kingdom, we measure impact by sacrifice, not the quantity. <coughs> and I think when 
when, when we make a choice to be self-sacrificial in how we're living, that in some way influences other people. And it, it, it starts a momentum kind of a thing. And if you get a community of people doing it, it gets a momentum kind of thing. And I, I honestly think that the, the last best chance for this planet is, is if that we get a, we hit a sufficient threshold of people where that are doing this, that in fact, we can at least mitigate against the worst effects of climate change. Yeah. It feels right. like a Hail Mary pass sometimes, but that's all I got. <laughs> well, but I, I do think, like you said, it's compelling. It's compelling to people who have share the same concerns and see the same things we see uh, in the same way that a lot of communitas local communities were built around moving into a neighborhood and saying, let's just see what the needs are here and start to serve. That's the way let's to make a difference. That's right. That's well, the same we thing applies to, can I do something to make a difference? On our home, this earth. Yes, um, all those things are. So the first task is really just to educate yourself. Um, yeah, just you have to read up on it. And and the thing is, um, you know, you're forcing yourself to study something that you're not going to like. Probably, you know, it it uh, it, it is. It, I mean, just for example, I just give one illustration. Can we make a difference? Well, uh, you know, there's 1,800 uh, tons of water. It takes 1,800, no, 1,800 pounds of water to make one beef patty for hamburger. It's a lot of water. Um, in fact, our, the, our, the whole industrial farm complex, it, just do the research on how that is harming our environment. Uh, it, it, it is, there's a great documentary out there called Eating Ourselves Into Extinction. It, that will, it's a very eye-opening documentary if you haven't read up on this. But yeah, you have to study up on it. And then you have to make all these hundred inconvenient decisions. Like, you know, it is, it's more expensive. It's inconvenient to not use plastic, to not have these reusable things that, you know, and you get into the compost and all that. But you know what? It feels good. It, 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 at least I'm, not, I'm I'm trying not to be on the, you know, in Revelations 11, it says that the time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. And, and it at least feels good not to be on the destroying side or on the destroying <laughs> side as little as possible. You know, and yeah, uh, yeah, and so it makes a difference. Well, going in a different direction for a bit, Greg. Um, mission, you know, Communitas is an organization on mission. We want to see these communities of faith pop up in neighborhoods all over the world that are transformational for the people involved in those communities, for the people who, um, yeah, in those communities, and and it's just. But this whole sense of mission, um, as performed by the church over 1,500 years, yeah, there's some beauty there, but there's a whole lot of ugly. Yeah. Um, we're stuck as an organization believing we're on mission, and the very term has a lot of negative connotations. How do we reclaim that? Yeah. Can we reclaim that? Is it a term we just let go? Um, what, what, yeah. What's the purpose? What's the objective of mission today from how you see things? Yeah. Well, I don't know of a better word, um, but you're right. You have to, uh, it, the word missionary, especially, I think still has mm -hmm. the connotations of, uh, you know, send out, take up the white man's burden, you know, and that the whole colonial crap and all that ugliness that went with that and that's still around you know so we have yes. to, you know, so it, 
So if we're going to hang on to the word, and I don't have a better one, but but our actions have to redefine it. And and we have to go out of our way to re- redefine it for people. That we're, by mission, you know, we're, we're talking about the kingdom of God, not trying to export America or Western culture or our, you know, mm-hmm. our ideologies or get rid of your customs or anything like that. Uh, we're you know planting seeds and as much as possible, making it indigenous. Um, yeah, it, but there, it, there's for good reasons. Uh, people hear missions and it's like, mm-hmm. we all, you know, I, I sometimes call it ambassadorship because that you know we're ambassadors from the kingdom of God. Uh, Paul calls us that, and uh, um, and, and so to be an ambassador is to be on a mission. I'm here to represent the interests of my kingdom. And uh, and uh, invite others into this kingdom. Um, so I'm a. That's just what it means to be an ambassador. You can call it missionary if you want, but it's. I'm not trying to get people to wear ties. Right, 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 right. That's up in church clothes. Well, um, I want to close with this question, Greg. Um, what's encouraging you most today? What what gives you a sense of joy and hope uh, as you? carry on this work of writing and speaking and engaging people to be a part of this Jesus way of life where you're seeing signs of hope well when, when whenever I see people uh whenever I get to experience uh people getting it um I, I and not just getting it like oh Jesus is Lord though that is always beautiful uh, you know when they first come to but but when they first get that God really loves them uh when when the the aha happens that brings about a change in their life uh, I never considered doing that, but now, you know, I, I, so I've been preaching on ecology lately. I know you want to get off that topic, but I'm a little obsessive on it. But, uh, the other day, a person came and they, they, they were so excited because they, they t- were telling me all the different things that they found that they could, you know, bamboo poles for toothbrushes. And we found they can get this soap and it doesn't biodegrade and we found this. And I'd love to see that, you know, it, there's an aha thing. I, I get to make a difference on, on what happens on this planet. Uh, I, that always I, that always just fills me with joy, uh, seeing people. When you see progress being made uh, in in the kingdom, uh, when you, I, I get hope when I see you know people acting very heroically. Sometimes uh, you, know, you see so much ugliness and bad stuff and hate, but you also see some examples of people just uh, you know putting their lives on the line. Uh, to you know, I just read this morning about this guy. Two Russells were out hiking and a bear got on one of the wrestlers so the other wrestlers wrestled off the bear and the two of them were able to shoo away the bear they'd both be dead if it wasn't for that but you know i, I those are inspiring stories and i just love that um I, the thing i get most hope out of is that it, it, and this also has happened as i've gotten more you know, trying to, i'm living in this sense of expectation for the end because the new testament tells us to live with this sense of expectation and it's really clarified for me that it, it comes down to this. Either I believe that love wins in the end, or it seems to me that this is just all a totally meaningless, absurd, Monty Python-esque joke, this thing called reality. If there's no mind behind it, no point behind it, no whatever. And so if there's any purpose to life, I have to believe it's love. And I think the story of God becoming a human being, dying on the cross, is the most loving story that could ever conceivably be told. So this is my ontological argument for uh, for the existence of God is that uh, the, the the love revealed and on and in the gospel story, if you understand it in its own terms, is that story greater than which none other can be told. So if there is a meaning of life, it's got to be this, and mm-hmm. and and that's helped me then put all my eggs in that basket. 
uh, I think the only thing we take with us, Kevin, is our is the love. Mm-hmm. This is it, it's it's the one thing that's eternal, and that's why you, know, you have faith, hope, and love. But the greatest is love, because love never began and it never ends, and that's the only thing about which you can say that's true. God is love. And and so the kingdom, and the, when the kingdom comes in fullness, God's love will define every square inch of it, which means every part of us that is not loving has got to be purged away, for our sake, because nothing unclean goes into the kingdom. And so it's given me this clarity that I want to every moment be answering this question: How can I be the most loving version of myself that I can possibly be? Uh, that's investing in my future, you know, because that, that, that's the only thing we take with us. And Jesus had a lot to teach about that. Right. So I live in that hope. Thank you, Greg. Um, you'd just be surprised as I travel for my job and meet and engage with people from all sorts of different places um, who don't know of our connection. Um, and all of a sudden they'll say, well, I've been listening to Greg Boyd or I've been reading Greg Boyd, this guy named Greg Boyd. Have you heard of him? And oh, yeah, I have. Um, and uh, that I bring that up to just say, um, you have spoken into the ethos and very fabric of our mission communitas um, more than you or I probably realize. And we're all deeply grateful for that. And we're thankful for you giving us this hour to talk a little bit about what God's putting on your heart. So thanks. Well, very, thanks a ton. Very kind of you to say. I, I really, I really appreciate that. And uh, I have the utmost respect for you and Communitas. And I just pray blessing on that whole organization. May the Lord continue to prosper you. Play your passion. Go Amen. Go. Thank you, Greg. God bless you, man.